Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I am John McKenzie and I'm joined, as I always am, by my good pal and producer, Mike Zimmerman. Mike, how are you doing? Doing good, John. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing really well and I'm doing really well because we've just had a conversation with a really fascinating guy, a fitness and conditioning expert, a guy called Callum Walsh. He's told us a lot about what goes on behind the scenes in medical departments at football clubs around the world. Um, and you have just listened to that conversation. So what did you make of it? I really enjoyed the conversation about you know the physical expectation that's kind of placed on these players now. Um, how much football is too much football? Is this really hurting players' futures and, and careers? Where do managers come in? Do they have a say with forcing these players on the pitch if they're just really not 100%? So different perspectives within the club. And, and I think Callum did a great job of kind of talking about who has what say. Yeah, absolutely. And again, rather than us talking about what he said, the best thing for us to do is to just move on and listen to what Callum had to say to us. So this is Callum Walsh. Back in August, Jurgen Klopp was asked a question about player welfare and his answer was pretty telling because he said, when I speak about player welfare, I speak about in general, we have too many competitions, we have too many games in general now. And the question about physical expectation that is placed on football is now at the forefront of the media coverage of the game. How much football is too much football? Will the long-term impact of this as many games, whatever the cost approach, start to ruin the spectacle of football? And can anything be done about it? Well, fortunately, we we're joined by someone who can help us walk through the problems associated with player fitness. Callum Walsh is a performance manager who's worked in the Premier League, the Championship and at international level, as well as in Brazil, Turkey and Qatar. Callum, thank you so much for coming on today. No worries. Thank you very much for having me. I think the best place for us to start off is to just talk a little bit about your background so that the listeners have a good sense of where it is that you're coming from. So tell us a little bit about how you ended up working in fitness and conditioning and your career pathway to this point. Uh, yeah, so um, basically kind of left school, wasn't really too sure what to do, went to college, still love football. I mean, I've always been kind of football crazy since I think it was the 1990 World Cup when I was sort of five or six, just made me absolutely fall in love with with everything football. And then um, I quite soon realized I wasn't going to be a player. So I started coaching when I was about 14, 15. Um, at satellite centers and that sort of thing really enjoyed the process um and then when i left i kind of just done my a levels and i wasn't really sure what was going on so randomly a gym opened up in in the, the town i went to college in and they were looking for staff so i went and became a personal trainer and i was kind of personal training and football coaching at the same time and i kind of thought oh well i'm quite enjoying this let's combine them so i end up going to university and doing a sports science degree and then off the back of that my kind of journey took me through Liverpool Academy in a coaching role and then I took my master's degree um, then I went to IMG Academy in the States um, Cardiff City um, where did I go from there sorry it's been a bit of a, a complicated one then I was out in out in Brazil for a, for a season working with a club called Atletico Paranense 
then with the Turkish national team in 2016. Then I went to the Aspire Academy in Doha in uh, in Qatar, and obviously the prep for the World Cup came back, and then was with Huddersfield. Um, then moved to Newcastle, and then last season I was in the Turkish Super League with uh, a team called Alanya Sport and a young coach that is uh, making quite big waves in France now, a guy called Francesco Farioli, who was uh, used to be Deserbi's assistant. So I worked with him for a year, which I, I was really lucky for, with. Well, there's lots and lots of different teams there. So I think this brings us quite nicely into a couple of questions that we did have about uh, what it's like working under different managers at different clubs and with different approaches. So Lab Mameti, one of our listeners, asked, how do you work under different styles and philosophies? And then Andreas Kirschmeyer said, um, differences between training schedules, length, intensity, focus. I always wonder how big the differences are between clubs. So you've obviously worked with a lot of different outfits, with a lot of different coaches. Would you say that there's similarities between each of those approaches? or is it very different depending on who is in charge there's very very few similarities so i've worked under under 23 head coaches i think it is in in different guises and something i ended up presenting to a board of directors one time was the difference between the previous manager and the new manager in one specific metric was about 500 percent so the impact that that has on players is is drastic so if we kind of start that from the week is it's very different from doing let's say a Saturday Saturday week where you doing a five-day lead up from Monday all the way through to Saturday or Tuesday through to Saturday because the day off might be Monday that's very different than a Wednesday as a day off which sounds a bit silly but you've got to take into account older players that might be have a long injury history do four or five days consecutively or some of these guys have bad hips bad knees bad ankles to load them on the grass four days consecutively is really problematic. So there's pros to it and there's cons to it. So every kind of manager, just in the whole layout of how they do the week, has pros and cons. And that's just what the day off is. Then you get down to what the training methodology is and how clear that is. So some of them will do certain things on a match day minus four. So if we say Saturday to Saturday, a match day minus four would be a Tuesday. So we always refer to the week as match day minus one, two, three, four, five, six, that type of thing, as opposed to Mondays or Tuesdays or Wednesdays. Everyone will have different philosophies around match day minus four, match day minus three. If you have match day minus three, match day minus two might be heavier. So then that takes time to adjust. And what they do on each day is different. So some go really light on Thursdays. Some go a little bit heavier on Thursdays. Some go a little bit heavier on Thursdays, but a little bit lighter on Friday. So that has impacts on what you get in the game or how players go into that game. There's lots of different... Some coaches do really big spaces, lots of high-speed running. Some do lots of small-sided stuff, which really can take the legs away from players. There's no good or bad. They're just really different. This kind of leads into probably a lot of the injuries that we're having at the minute is when you're constantly changing that, it takes time for people to adapt. So it's when you first go to the gym, you know, if you're, you know, if, if you go out running every day and then you take up cycling, the first two, three, four weeks, although you're still fit before, you're going to feel a little bit sore in different places or vice versa. It doesn't mean one is good and one is bad, but it takes time to adapt. So the nuances of that and then the training model usually depends on the game model. So I've had it where if you look at two players that played number six in the Premier League, both at international level, their high speed running per game was one of the players, I won't name the players, was about 200 metres per game and the other was 1,200 metres per game. One is not good, one is not bad, 
that fits the game model that they have at that team, what the manager wants of them. But the requirements for the, what that player has to do every game is very, very different. And again, it doesn't mean they're good or bad. It just means that what's required of them every game. So that player that's doing 1,200 every game for him to go Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday is very different than a player that's doing three or 400 in the same position because maybe the game model is different or how they actually play that number role, um, that number six or that number eight role can be vastly different as we've seen. You know, there's Kante's, there's Makaleli's, there's the Pirlo's. So there's nuances, not just within the training, the game model, but then how each player plays each position. Yeah, I'm interested to hear that when you're approaching the possibility of a new job then, do you have a look at what a manager's approach to training has been look at what that game model is and to make up your mind whether or not you even want to go for the job in the first place. How much does that impact the way that you can work with the squad? Is there is there certain coaches who would be, be a better fit for the way that you approach things than others? It really kind of depends. So at my stage in my career, I've probably worked with, with all of them. So I know what the good and the bad traits, not good and bad traits, but where might be the pinch points. So if it's coach A in his style, I know that Wednesdays or Max A minus three, the ones that are really kind of pernickety for us to get right. And certain things in his style that we may need to be aware of both good and bad. And then likewise, if it's coach B, oh no, right. Well, actually I don't need to do, I don't need to really worry about A because that kind of takes care of itself. But B, I really have to be dialed in on. Um, so again, it can be stuff like, um, you know, is it a high press coach versus a low block coach? One is not good and bad, but, they're very different in the requirements of what's required from the players. If you're a low block coach, you're generally having to go from box to box very quickly. So that means players have a high level of high speed running and sprint distance. And that has to be right, whether that's in the first minute, the 50th minute or the last minute, because that transition is what's going to win you the games. We had a few questions actually about different approaches to fitness and conditioning impacting uh, play style and level. So uh, a question from Stoopy said, how much of an influence does the team's game model have on the strength and conditioning process and vice versa? So you've already started touching on that, but um, can you think of any other examples of, of, of why, the, you, you know, when you're approaching um, a, a strength and conditioning um, schedule, how that might change depending on what, what different clubs are expecting of their players? Oh, that it's a good question. I think what you've always got to be wary of is, like you say, certain coaches have certain models. So certain coaches in their training might do a lot of crossing and finishing. So you know that adductors and quads are going to be flared up. Others have a lot of short passing. Others have lots of axles, decels. So you then have to dial into it, right, what problems is this going to cause? And sometimes when a new manager comes in, if you don't know, for example, if you're a club employee and you're the head of sports science or head of performance at a club and the manager comes in, and you have to work with him. It takes you five, six, seven, eight weeks to adjust to what his max A minus three looks like, what problems it's starting to throw up, what the positives. And then you can start to go, well, you know, we're having this real problem with adductors at the minute. What, why is that happening? Then you kind of dial into the micro level content of what's going on and what days and what repercussions it's having. Now, it might be having repercussions on four or five players, but not the rest of them. So why is it having repercussions on those four or five players? Let's look into their testing data in terms of muscle imbalances, muscle strength. What were their previous injury histories? What position are those four or five players? They might all be number sixes. So I work with a coach that basically everyone that, <laughs> when he came in, everyone that got put in the number six role after 10 days training kind of broke because the demands on that number six in training were so heavy compared to everyone else. 
So we kind of go, well, it's not the training model. It's that one specific role. So now what is it about that specific role that's causing the problems? Then what can we put in place to try and negate those problems so that these players don't break down and stay available? How much conversation is taking place between coaching staff and fitness and conditioning staff ahead of a week of training? Is it is it the case that they'll get together and say, well, this is what we want to do as coaches. Can you make sure that the players are at the right level of fitness or are doing the right fitness work to make sure that we're not going to end up with problems? Is, is it very, very coach dependent? So depending on, on the coach, um, some will have very little impact, very little um, interest in in the fitness and the medical side of things, they've got their, what they need to work on that week. And by hook or by hook, that's what's getting done because ultimately they're the ones in the dugout. So if I say to them, right, you know, don't do A, B and C with players one, two and three, but they might be the best three players or three key players. And then he's going, he loses a game at the weekend and then it's your fault. So he might say, do you know what? I'm the one that's got four games to keep my job, not you. So I'm going to do it my way. And that's their prerogative. And, and, I get it because they're the ones that stood in the technical area. Others, it can be a kind of weekly meeting. I've worked with coaches where I would almost kind of give them a rough target for the week. Then they would plan out the week. And then I'd be like, right, that session there is a little bit too close to the game. But if you take that out of match day minus two and put it match day minus three, it works a little bit better. So then you can have those kind of conversations. So that can be at the start of the week. And then every day you're kind of constantly feeding back GPS reports, recovery reports, heart rates, uh, muscle fatigue reports, all those things to see, oh, actually, hold on, player X, we have this plan for the week, but do you know what? Actually did a little bit more than we thought on match day minus four, and they're coming in with A, B, and C. How are we going to readjust that week, and what do we need to do to make sure they stay available? Now, some coaches go, I don't care if he's a little bit sore, is really important he does it and others say no no I'd rather have the player and that's ultimately their decision that's all very interesting and you can tell I'm uh, I'm having so much fun I've already taken us off on wild tangents here so I'm going to try and get back as back on track by uh, asking a question I intended to start off with the podcast with because I wanted to talk a little bit about what is physicality or strength so Stoop one of our listeners asked how do you define what physicality actually is in terms of on-pitch performance beyond classifying a player as big strong fast etc and I thought there was a really interesting question to to sort of get us into the mindset of the way that um, the, the strength and conditioning um, experts will think about players in in terms of their athletic capacity so the thing is is when you get to top level most of them have what you'd call like a super strength what I mean by super strength is they can either almost run all day, they can leap like you wouldn't believe, the pace of them is frightening. So usually they'll have one or two super strengths. Now that super strength is kind of born out of their development. So what you find is football players are so incredibly intelligent at understanding what they are. So if it's a right winger, they'll understand for example, if one's technical and one is really quick, that's something they've grown up with. So they've kind of learned this trait that is really important to their game. So, okay, if they're, let's say, a Theo Walcott versus David Beckham, how they play a wide right role might be completely different versus, say, a Phil Foden or a Jack Grealish. But what they get really good at is doing what is successful for them. So if that is speed, if that is, you know, being a big, strong number nine. So they get really good at those things. So 
will take lots of different batteries of testing in terms of speed, change of direction, ability to decelerate from top speed, hamstring and ductor strength. But for me, I always look at physicality in two ways. Is, is that player robust enough to carry out their super strength for the game of football? And are they robust enough to do it in the man in the manner that the manager wants them to? Because how a Marcelo Bielsa wants a number nine to play is very different than the way a Guardiola or a Klopp or a Postatroglu all want their number nine to play. So that's how I describe physicality. And what you're seeing now is these guys that are churning out five, six thousand minutes per year, which when I started 15 years ago, if a player got around 3,000 to 3,500 minutes, it was like, what a great season they've had because I think that's like 35 to 38 games. So that means you've not been suspended, really. You've um, you've been picked regularly, so you must be playing well. And also, you've not had any major injuries. Okay, you might have had a little dead leg or a nick in your calf that's kept you out for one or two games, but it's been a really consistent season. That's three to three and a half thousand minutes, whereas your sellers, your... Harry Kane, Jeruben Dersis are playing 5,000, 6,000 minutes for five, six, seven years. So they've got a level of robustness to carry out their game model and what the manager wants 60 times a season. And that, for me, is physicality in football. We've got a few more questions that touch on this sort of concept of physicality, but I wonder if we could just throw a question in about biomechanics because one of the things I'm starting to see more as I um, as I follow football on particularly social media, I think is people starting to inject uh, ideas about biomechanics into their analyses of of what's going on. So you'll see people talking about step count, you'll see people talking about um, leg to body ratios and stride length and things like that. Uh, and I I guess my question is like how much use is there in listening to people particularly non-specialists talking about those kind of ideas and to what extent are those kind of biomechanic aspects taken into account by people within clubs so i think there, there's a couple of factors to this first of all i think everybody um i don't think the listeners maybe potentially realize how dedicated all the fitness and i mean everyone that works in football is incredibly dedicated i mean like they live and breathe it and these people they'll be in the off season going to different sports days off going to different sports you know what can they learn from hockey what can they learn from rugby what can they learn from rowing all these different things and it might just be like uh, if we've had a shoulder injury right let's go to rugby what do they do for dislocated shoulders say like an andy robertson situation so they'll be upskilling on those sorts of things all the time be it from football or different sports so we're always really receptive to listen to ideas, but I also think you've got to take them with a little bit of um, context. So biomechanics is really important, um, but I think we've got to be really careful. And there's there's two there's two parts. This the first the first one is if it's not broke, don't fix it. These guys are really really highly tuned. So, for example, let's say if you've got a Luis Suarez who plays every minute of every game or Mohamed Salah plays every minute of pretty much every game and he's got a leg length deficiency or he's got a stride rate that is biomechanically not correct. If he's not missing any games, don't mess with it because these guys are so finely tuned. It's almost like, well, if you try and fix it, you can actually create a lot more problems because they've almost found this level of homeostasis where their body is kind of set 
that is the norm for them and they're robust and they can play at that level. Then you've got another situation and it might be a player that is a bit more injury prone or a player that's having um, repeated hamstring issues. Those are the ones that you start to go, right, well, what is going on here? Is stride length, is um, backside mechanics too big? Is that too big when they're sprinting with the ball, without the ball? How are they getting out from acceleration to five metres? How is that five metres to 10 metres? Ten, And then a lot of the times we'll either look to do it or we'll look to bring in specialists that will start to do that. So we'll analyse. I mean, I know a lot of clubs are analysing sort of sprint techniques, all those sorts of things, particularly for players that are having real chronic issues to be like, OK, well, if it's, you know, Harry Kane or Rodri or whatever, you know, we're not going to mess with those because they're playing 6,000 minutes. But this guy that keeps breaking down, let's look at him. Let's say like a navigator type at Liverpool that can't seem to get any rhythm or any minutes consistently. Go, right, well, what's going on here and can we try and fix it? And then the other aspect to that is it takes a long, long time to do that. So if you're looking more championship or low-end Premier League, you've probably actually not got the time to fix it because it might take three, six, 12 months maybe two years to really properly fix it. Whereas in that time, the manager might be gone and this player might be gone. Whereas if you're at a Man City or a Liverpool and you, some of those players have been there five, six, seven, eight years. So you're getting a really good understanding of those players and you can really start to develop those players as well. Um, we've got a few other questions as well about the differences between athletic profiles. So two sets of questions here. One about the 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 difference between players in terms of um, athletic profile. So Wasi asks, how much of a difference is there in terms of the ability to handle load or minutes from one player to another? How do they find out, and how do they how do you manage when when these sorts of things happen? We we try and treat everyone as an individual. So sometimes we we'll, we'll kind of see where they're at against the rest of the group. But most of them will see where they're at compared to where they've been at at the same stage in previous weeks. So, okay, match day plus one, we'll do hamstring and adductor squeeze testing. Or, you know, like sort of Nordboard, see see the impact of the game. Now, they might be 50% down on match day plus one. But if they're always 50% down match day plus one, and that's been the data that we've had for the past 55 games, that's fairly normal. Whereas if someone that used to be 10% down every match day plus one, but then all of a sudden is 20% down, that's probably more alarming because it's a little bit outside of the norm. So then you've got to look at a lot of these contexts in terms of, like, well, what was different about their game? What was their physical output? What happened in the training week before? What other markers are going on? Other things that really stress the system, like have they just had a child? Is you know, is a child sleeping? Sometimes you find out, you know, oh, do you know what? Two nights before the game player X's kid was in hospital in A&E. So, okay, well, they're actually going into the game a bit more fatigued than normal. So you have to start to really delve into these sorts of things. Once you start to build up the picture of those things, you then start to do it. And it's only through, it sounds awful, kind of trial and error that you can either be really prescriptive and say, right, we've got a load of red flags with the player. We're not going to risk him. So you'll always be proven to be right because you've always saved an injury. But then there's other times where you're saying, I shouldn't really, we've got all the red flags and then they might play the next three games and be fine. So again, this is a conundrum that you have with staff. Do you pull the player out to potentially save an injury, but the injury might not have happened? Or do you risk him and he might be fine and you might win the game? Or you might 
win the game and him get injured and be out for four games. So it's a constant trying to judge sort of risk factors. And it's almost like when you're driving and you're constantly judging, right, the floors where this is a speed limit, this is out, there's a school up there. And you're trying to piece all these things together and you'll never know with ultimate certainty because there can be some lads that you see in, in real horrid states at the end of the game. You think, particularly around Christmas when you're playing sort of two or three guys are hobbling out and you're thinking, how the heck are they going to play in three days and they're fine? And then other lads sort of might have 12 days and you're thinking, how are they still not able to play for something that seemed really minor? So everyone is individual and you won't know them until you kind of test it effectively. Yeah, I'm thinking in this respect of Kevin De Bruyne who gets the gets that hamstring injury in the Champions League final and then is brought back and everyone had questions about him being brought back so soon when this season kicked off uh, and, and again having to go off because he had hamstring issues. But presumably that is something which happens more as well as players get older and the, the context is always changing for each player. It's not that their athletic profile is always going to stay the same for their whole career. It's that it's going to change and I suppose that's something that you have to monitor as well. Yes, yeah, so, so again... Um... You, you can only monitor the player. So a player that's 24 that's had no soft tissue injuries is very different than one a 24-year-old that's had load or a 30-year-old that's played every minute of every game for 12 years pretty much that's had no soft tissues is very different. I had a player that I worked with that was probably one of the biggest machines I've ever, you know, I mean, lived like an absolute Greek god, never put anything in his body. And I thought, oh, this guy will play until he was 40. And I remember I found out after I'd left the club about a year later, he'd done a quad. And I thought, that's not like him. He never does quads. And then all of a sudden it became at 33, he had quad, hammy, adductor, and he just kind of tailed off. So there's no telling that until you get that first injury, how that will then affect that player's robustness moving forward. So again, that was a probably, I can't think of the top of my head, that might have been his first real major setback so now how they deal with him is going to be very different than how they would have dealt with him 16 18 months ago and again they're constantly taking in all this information to paint this picture of risk versus reward so again champions league final risk what you want because you've got three months off and you need to win the game you know if it's a condensed fixture period and you've only got one or two strikers and whatever and it's and we find i find this in covid where you might have five games in a 14-day period. So if someone does a grade one calf, they're missing five games. Whereas if you do a grade one calf, or I've known lads that have done more serious injuries, and because of the way this, the calendar works with international breaks, they've missed one game. But it was a much more serious injury. So you're just constantly adding these pictures and values and risk assessments before you're presenting anything to the manager. And you can never be 100%, but you are just saying, listen, this player, every time he's reported these things, he's then had a problem in the game or after the game, or he's reported these problems every week for the past six weeks and has gone out on Saturday and performed fine and all his data suggests he's fine. So we suggest he's probably okay. But when we can rest him, you know, if you are three nil up at halftime or four nil up, can you get him off? You know, if it's one nil going to last 10 minutes and he's your captain, you're going to leave him on. But if you're three nil up, that might be your first substitution. I've got one more question about the the sort of more physical aspects before we move on to the topic that everyone is no doubt tuning in for. So, um, but this is a question about muscle gain and mobility. This was something that came up with a few 
listener questions. So Lorcan asked the, the nature to well to ask you about the nature of the trade off between power and muscle development and mobility, if there is one. Uh, if not, why or how players have developed muscle and lost mobility. So I think this is obviously something that people think about in the in the wake of uh, again the modern um, development of, of football. I'm thinking of someone like um, Leon Gretzka at, at Bayern who turned up as, as quite a lithe. Um, uh, quite willowy kid and uh, is now very much uh, mu- muscled up um, so yeah what's at stake with, with those kind of issues obviously you want your players to be robust but not to the point at which they're starting to lose some of the mobility that might be part of their upside yeah I mean I think as ever when you look to gain something you've got to think what is enough so I can't remember the rule of thumb but it's almost like how much is enough to be strong how much is enough to be able to run far for a long period of time. You know, if the guy can run it, you know, I had a couple of players that were just, I mean, athletically, I mean, just scary. It's like, well, do they have to get any fitter? Well, I don't know, because they're churning out, let's say, 140 metres per minute for a 90-minute game. So do I waste any of my time trying to get them fitter? Because probably my, my avenue to get them again is probably... I might be able to get in two or three percent, but what the amount of time and effort and resource it takes to get two or three percent, I could, might be able to get 20 percent in something else or 30 percent in something else. So, again, it's constantly that trade off. I would probably say people don't again realize how, first of all, how skilled you've got to be, or secondly, how much time it takes to put on that serious amount of muscle mass. So, you've got to have a really strategic strength program from some of these top top guys that know how to put muscle on how to put mass on because there's also a nutrition side of that that supports that and then also how to make it functional in terms of you don't want dead weight you don't want to gain muscle that's not going to help your performance so these guys will be doing lots of testing and lots of specific type movements and when we talk about functional i'm not talking about lots of things on bosu balls or backflips or you know all those sorts of things or doing stuff on the pitch so it's functional i'm talking about what move can you do in the gym where you can gain strength and power that then is transferable so whether that be a trap bar deadlift and overcoming a static object that's x percent of your lifting capability so that when you're actually starting and you're looking to accelerate into the ground from a from a standing start you've actually increased your ability to do that by six percent eight percent because that's transferable so that's going to make you more explosive out the blocks that will make you more explosive in the ability to jump i don't necessarily think there's usually too much of a mobility issue because the guys that are putting a lot of these programs together at the top clubs know what they're doing you know it's not a bodybuilders program it's a full body program to make them again strong in contact but mainly it's how to develop strength and size it's going to propel them either forward or up or an ability to stop because those are the things that really make differences in the elite level of sport. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Well, we need to get to the uh, the question at hand, which is what we led the intro with, and that is the question about how many games are too many. And this is obviously one that a lot of our listeners were very interested in hearing your opinions on. So a question from Emily saying, I'd be interested in your view about how many games is too many games and what do you think is a reasonable recovery time between matches? And then Dave Farris wanted to know about, is there any data to back up what seems like an increase in injuries? with an increase in games as well. So, yeah, what's your take on the, the big topic of fitness and conditioning in the modern game? Let's try and unpick that. So, so first of all, how much is too much? So, I think by process, top-level football becomes a bit like what I would say the Chinese Olympic program was for many years. So, they'll have, let's say, 10 guys that can can, can compete for Olympic gold at a certain body weight in taekwondo now what they can do is they can push all those 10 guys as hard as they want and if three or four of them break it's fine because you've got six more if you're the british olympic program you might have one guy that might medal so you've got to treat that guy very differently like when i was in brazil you could push because the squads were 50 deep so you don't have to be conscious of pushing because the strongest survived to get the premier league these are the best of the best of the best and by process are the strongest that survive. So they've proven either athletically they're very good or they're really robust. So if you're playing for Sevilla or um, Barcelona or whoever it is and you're playing Saturday, Thursday, Saturday, Tuesday, you've proven over a period of time you're probably able to maintain playing regularly. Now, the more games you have, actually, the less training you do because these guys just get in a cycle of pretty much Game recover, game um, game recover, match prep, game recover, match prep. So they don't really train that much. So sometimes what can actually be problematic is when these guys get two weeks off or a whole week to build up to a game because they're almost not used to it. So that becomes more problematic than it isn't. And the ones that then get signed that then can stay on the hamster wheel are soon either sold or they drop out of it. And you look at the players that have maybe gone to Liverpool or Man City or Arsenal or whatever, and they can stay on that wheel for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, and then they just can't keep up with the wheel. And what they'll do is they'll go and spend 40 or 50 million to replace them in someone that firstly aligns with what the game model is, and secondly, that they can know is robust. So if you look at what Liverpool have gone and done with their recruitment, they go, right, we have a real heavy physical model we didn't want Daniel Sturridge or whoever it was because they weren't robust enough so we'll replace him with Firmino he's robust he's proven he's robust enough and if he doesn't we'll go and replace him then he's proven for five six years he could do it and then it got to the, almost the end of a cycle and they start to replace him again so that's the advantage of having clear alignment from the coach the game model and what's required from the players so these guys that are doing it regularly is it's pretty much only what they're capable of doing. Then you've got a group of staff that are taking every measure under the sun in terms of physical data, bloods, everything you can imagine to try and see how did that game impact them physically, cognitively, all those things. And are they ready to go again? The other factor that's changed it is the more games we've had, but now we've got five subs. So particularly if you're an attacking player, if you look at, say, the minutes that, say, a Saka has played compared to a Salah, it's very different. So if you're Saka and playing 65, 70 minutes every game across three games a week, you're saving, especially with 10 minutes now, you're almost saving 30, 60. You're almost saving one game in the week. 
because if you're changing your front three and maybe you're eight and you're 10, whereas previously you couldn't really do that. So you had to pick two or three players that were rotated, but whether technically or tactically. So a lot of these striking four players, and I think we'll see this shift now, is it's almost like go heavy for 55, 60, maybe 70 minutes, and then we'll change it because we haven't got to keep anyone. You know, we can change all front three because we've still got another two subs in case there's an injury. So that's really good in one way because you save the time on legs and you might save, let's say, 120 meters per minute for 30 minutes. So what's that? 4K for a 12K a week. So you're effectively saving one game in lieu, if that makes sense. The other aspect of it is that if it then becomes pre-planned and they know they're going to pretty much come off at 60 or 70, there's every potential they could go harder in that 60 or 70 minutes. I guess that a lot of the the questions that, that surround this kind of issue are accepting of the fact that the reason why there's so many games is because the clubs are wanting to get the best that they can out of their players. They're wanting to get the best results. Do you think that life would be a lot easier for everyone involved if if there was that external regulation, assuming that you know no club or coach or, or manager, whatever, is going to be able to make those decisions when, as you've said, they're constantly thinking in terms of you know I've got four games to keep my job on a rolling on a, on a rolling uh, continuum. Do you think if that external regulation came in and said we're going to play fewer games uh, because it, it is going to one make the, the the spectacle more enjoyable to watch, but it's also going to be uh, better for player welfare? Do you think that that would improve you, your ability as a fitness and conditioning coach? Um, I, I guess compared to having to sort of, as it sounds like at the moment, nurse players through the, the schedules that we already have? I think it would almost become as problematic because if you're going to say a player can play 55 games per year, playing 55 games as a centre-back is very different than playing 55 games as a number nine or a number seven. Playing 55 games where you get in taken off at 60 minutes is very different than playing 55 games at 90 minutes. Playing 55 games in the Premier or a Premier League season and a Champions League season is very, very different than playing 55 games in Brazil or 55 games in the French League or La Liga. So where do you start? I'm not saying we really do need to look after player welfare because post-career, you know, it will impact them. But I think it becomes really murky. And I think what you'll then end up doing is squads or the bigger squads with the bigger budgets will just hoover up a higher quality of player in the squad and you'll get less young players breaking through because if player X is limited to 40 games, well, if you know you've got 65 games if the season goes well, you, you're you not going to have a kid in the squad. You're going to go, well, I want an established international from Poland, Croatia, Spain, whatever, and you'll go and spend 40, 50 million to have a backup right back that can step in that is exactly the same as, as your first standard if that makes any sense and what about the ethical implications of as you said you know this does have long-term effects on a player's physical well-being into their post-retirement life obviously again as, as I say it's, it's very hard to expect players to make those sorts of decisions for themselves at a point in time when they want to have the best career they can have and obviously a very short career as well so they're going to push themselves to the limits but there obviously are some ethical implications there about about how you make help those players make those decisions so that they don't have repercussions into their uh, post-retirement life right yeah and, and and listen that anytime a player kind of goes through a a procedure or an injury that's where the medical staff will really sit down and talk to them about, right, 
you're wanting to do, for example, we've had players that go, right, these are the two options. From your injury, we can either let it take its course and it'll be 12 weeks out, or you can go for surgical repair and it'll be 16 weeks out, but longer term, it'll be better for you. Or it might be the surgical one is shorter, but do you know what? You might have to have it again in six years when you're done. And that is up to the medical staff and the player to sit down and make a conscious decision, taking all those facts into account. Now, those aren't always decisions I'm involved in. So, you know, excuse me if I'm kind of overstepping the mark from some medical professionals, but these guys will literally lay out all the implications of every procedure they do and what happens short, medium and long term and what the ramifications potentially are for the players. Now, these players are, it, it kind of always makes me laugh because managers, you know, you might kind of say, ah, oh, player X is having problem A, B and C with whatever it is. And you'll tell the manager and the manager will kind of collar him at the end of training and say, oh, how are you feeling? He's like, oh, great, great. Yeah, I'm fine. So then the manager said, oh, well, he said he was fine to me. Well, yeah, because he wants to get picked. So, <laughs> you know, he's not going to tell the manager, oh, do you know what? My ankle's hanging off. I can hardly run. Because then he doesn't want to lose his spot in the team. Because if he loses his spot in the team, he doesn't know when he's going to get back in that team. What happens if his replacement then scores? He might have three months left on his contract. So a lot of these guys end up taking decisions because they they've got a certain makeup where they are the mentality of these guys for anybody that says that they don't care has never met one of these guys because the mentality of them, I mean, is off the charts, whether it be a passing drill, a five versus five training. I mean, it's like a World Cup final to them. So they, they want to push the push the boundaries as much as possible. And then occasionally it is that piece where as medical fitness professionals, we're saying, listen, we actually have to make this call because we don't feel this is ethically correct for you, if that makes sense. But then there are other times it's kind of in a bit of a grey zone and it's a discussion between the player, the doctor, maybe his agent, maybe the manager, whoever that player might want to kind of take. You know, the player might have a, a dad or a brother that's been a player or whatever and a sounding board that goes, do you know what, I've gone off and spoke to my wife, I've gone off and spoke to my the dad and you know i think i'm going to take option b because it works best for me another question that a lot of people asked was about youth players as well and you've talked to us, uh, to us already about the, the the jump up in numbers of minutes that can be played within the course of a season um a player who's always mentioned is bakaya saka in that in that respect are we expecting that this is going to change the the age curve profiles of a lot of these players going forward with the expectation to play so many minutes? Uh, is it the case now that players are, are going to see their retirement age coming down because of the expectation of minutes earlier on in their careers? Potentially. I've got no science to back this up, and this is just a theory of mine. Having worked in Brazil for a year, these guys get dropped in really early. So if you look at Neymar, I think Neymar played 231 games before he came to Barcelona. I think he was, what, like 20. 230 games is pretty much what a really good championship or Premier League player will have by the time they're, let's say, Emil Smith-Rowe or someone like that, Trevor Chalabar. You know, a young uh, Phil Foden, a Cole Palmer that will have these. They'll probably get that 24-25. So to come into their 231 and this started making me think, 
how many Brazilians that have come to Europe and, I mean, been lifted across the Premier League, Decos, Ronaldinho's on, how many of them have really played to a high level post-30 in, in the past 20 years? You can probably, probably name them on one, maybe two hands. Dante, Roberto Carlos, Cafu. So is there something in terms of this bell curve where they're probably not going to play as long, but they're probably going to maybe play the same amount of minutes in a more condensed period? I think there is something that we'll start to see where maybe players that come in younger finish a little bit younger because how many players, for example, in the Premier League are 31, 32, 34, 35? Rooney, by the time he was 32, 33, was a different kettle of fish and when you talk about your Gary McAllisters who are playing at 38, 39 Gordon Strachan's going back you don't really see an awful lot of that you know it used to be your peak was at 28, 29 whereas now I think you know purely in my own thinking I think that has shifted maybe to 25, 26 maybe 27 and after that it's you're almost starting to ease off a little bit not ease off but if you look at Firmino's or Fabinho's at Liverpool they're not old you know, they're still what would be deemed peak years 10 years ago, but they're not at that level now. I've got a series of questions about maybe bigger club concerns um, in terms of in terms of fitness. So Nathan asks, how often do you think that an elite club going through a bad run of games is probably best explained by them being at a low point in their long-term periodization cycle? Now, that question includes this concept of periodization cycle, which a lot of our listeners might not know about. So could you just explain what a periodization cycle is and then it will give us the context to be able to answer that question? So a traditional periodization cycle if you took a different sport, would be, okay, we've got the Summer Olympics in July. So we'll go through these phases of six-week blocks of training that will look at different physical capabilities to gain X amount because if we try and do all of them together, we're going to really achieve nothing. So we'll put on muscle mass for this six-week period, and that might be 14 months out from the Olympics. Then we'll do strength, speed, speed all these different factors, then we'll build the engine, all these different factors that are kind of periodically periodized into six week blocks that fit to an Olympic cycle. But what you've got in football is you haven't really got a cycle. So all you've got is your weeks. So you've got Monday through, through Sunday. So you've got a you've got an off season period, which now is pretty much non-existent for most of the players. So 10 to 14 days off. So that's pretty much rest and recovery. Then you've got pre-season, which is different depending on what level of club you're at. You might be able to get a load of work in. You might not be able to get any work in. So you can put lads in a deep place under fatigue. I know Liverpool a couple of years ago when they went to Austria before they ended up playing every game of the season had a, a really different pre-season. And I think for me, if you look at their injury rates that year, were fantastic. And I think having a really good pre-season was a really big part in that as opposed to jetting off here, there, here, there, here, there and not getting any real foundation work in. So there would, year, not years ago, but a period of time ago, there was almost like a fitness block near the start of the season and then you'd taper that down so it would become less volume, more intense, more sharpness going into the first game. Now, some people would take that into the first two or three weeks of the season. The problem is, is what started to happen was people were putting themselves in a, in a not a bad place, but a fatigued state, knowing that 
they would come out of it in a super compensation factor where they would bounce back from it. But by that point, you're four games into the season, you've lost all four and the manager's been sacked. So why are you going to do that? Um, so now the periodization cycle tends to be more within the week. So you tend to look at um, almost six-week cycles or six-game cycles, however you want to do it, and go, right, this how many games we've got in. What does each week look like? So where do we fit the strength in? Where do we fit the recovery in? Where do we fit the power work in? Where do we fit big-sided games in? Where do we fit any condition in? Oh, there's a nine-day block here without any games. We might be able to do some extra work on the grass versus this week here that is Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Wednesday. So there's not going to be a lot of training time there. So that two-week block at the start is more important. We can prioritize A, B, and C than we can in that block. So you're constantly readjusting each block. And then, like you say, each week then has big days, smaller days. So there's sort of a couple of different periodization models. So there's the Portuguese model, which was designed by Vita Fraud, which is the tactical periodization model. And out of that has been sort of three or four different models that have kind of spurted out of that. There's a Raymond Verheyen model. So what that is, is going right. Well, if you play on Saturday, what do you do match day plus one? What do you do match day plus two? So summer in and recover, then summer off. And then Monday, match day minus five. What happens on the pitch? What doesn't happen on the pitch? Match day minus four. Is that big? Is that small? Do you overload small sided then on Wednesday, overload big sided? So what you'll see is, in games, when you start doing small-sided games, you get almost around about a 200% increase on what's required in games from accelerations and decelerations. So you're ticking that, you're ticking that box, but you get nothing on big-sided. So if on Wednesday you do big-sided, 11 versus 11, or however you want to constrain that 8 versus 8, you want to get around 150 to 160 metres per minute because that's the worst-case scenario for a three- or four-minute block a player will have in, in the champ or prem. So... You then go, right, well, Wednesday, we kind of need to do that. Then Thursday, you kind of reduce a little bit. Then Friday, you reduce even more because you're wanting to freshen up from Tuesday and, and Wednesday in time for the game. Now, if you don't have Tuesday and Wednesday, you have a game, you effectively use that game as your physical stimulus for that week, if that makes any sense. So you're always trying to effectively replicate a game in the middle of the week, whether you do it in one session, two sessions, or just an actual game itself. You mentioned that Liverpool had a really good pre-season uh, ahead of one season. Uh, and we had a question from Alban Shakiri who said, you have interviews with Pep Linders and Klopp or Conte talking about doing very good pre-season physically. Um, and it's very important because it builds the foundation for the rest of the season. So Alban asks, what do you prefer to do in order to build this good physical level as possible in the pre-season phase? So I think pre-season always kind of... I always look at it as a, as a couple of different blocks. So I look at it as... Where you can back, you can only push so hard so fast. So if you've got, let's say, a six-week block, it's really key where they come back in the off-season. So if they've had a month or six weeks off, compared to if they've had two weeks off, the lower they come back in, that limits how far you can push them. So I think the off-season prepares you for pre-season. Your pre-season prepares you for the games, the first friendly games. And then those games prepare you for the first five games. And then those five games effectively get you match sharp for for Premier League because you can play four, five, six hundred minutes, but until you play a Premier League game, it's very different. So managers can do it. Some managers do it through just game minutes and playing lots of games. 
some some coaches like right lots of game exposure six you know five six seven hundred minutes of games some like to do it in terms of um, like the more tactical periodization in terms of they believe transfer is better right well what we'll do is we'll manipulate all our games and we'll overload and underload three versus three four versus four eight v eight nine v nine we'll change we'll change the times we'll change the sizes to physically stretch them others will do a kind of combination of of all of them and others will look to go right well this is a running test we do we're going to do this conditioning on top of the football and then we'll do game minutes so how every single practitioner does it is very different and i think everywhere you go and depending on the coach you work with you'll have to adjust that ever so slightly some will want a lot more running for whatever reason they just think it's they like it i mean you can probably overload easier it's more measurable others believe that that without the ball has got no transfer so in our game you almost have to have the skill to be able to go right if the manager wants them i've had a manager that said literally no balls first five days of pre-season and i've had other ones that said i don't want anything done without the ball so then you have to be able to get players fit for the games in both ways as a practitioner I think I want to take us to talk a little bit then about some of the teams where um, you maybe find that they get recurrent injuries. So um, one of the examples this season has been, or in the last couple of seasons has been Chelsea. So the Elastico said, how should we think about teams that consistently suffer from more injuries than others? Take Chelsea, for example. Is it just bad luck or, or could, it, could, could it be things like overtraining, return to play too soon after injury without proper reconditioning, etc.? And uh, other Clubs, I guess, uh, Manchester United have had a bit of an injury problem recently. Uh, I'm a Leeds United fan and over the last couple of seasons, we've had a lot of players who seem to get recurring injuries as well. So how do you tend to think about these sorts of scenarios? Oh, so I think there's a couple of factors to this. I think, as I kind of alluded to earlier, it takes time to get used to a manager. So if you're Chelsea and you've had Tuchel, Potter, Lampard and Pochettino four managers in the space of a year. That takes eight to 10 weeks for the players to adapt to it, whatever that training is. There's also another element that it then takes six or eight weeks for them to get used to the game model and what's required from the game model. So as we spoke about testing the players, is how does player X, so for example, how does Conor Gallagher, how does a game that he played under Tuchel versus Lampard versus Potter versus Pochettino, how does that impact him after every game? Because it might it might be the same. It might be very different because what he's getting asked to do could be drastically different. So maybe he's actually in a worse place now than he was under Potter, or it might be the other way around. Do you know what? The game under Potter physically took more out of him than this. Now, that doesn't mean he was fit or not fit. It just means what he was getting asked to do at that time drained his system more than what he's getting asked to do now because that might be something that is really comfortable in his wheelhouse. So that's the first element. The second element is when you're constantly changing manager, what clubs don't necessarily always do is they don't always do a lot of research in terms of what their training and game model requires physically. So I think last year, I think there was, I think it was around 70% of teams change their manager when they're 17th or below. So if you're changing when you're 17th or below, the new manager comes in, needs to hit the ground running. So they're spending more time on the grass to get their ideas across. And then there's also the transition between 
players getting used to it so there could be a spike of injuries. And then when you're returning to play, every manager has his own philosophy in terms of how he likes to, players to be integrated. Some say they can do a little bit with us and a little bit with the physio. So, for example, you might say, oh, I want them, let's say, players being out for 12 weeks. Oh, do you know what? It'd be great if they just warmed up with the group and did like a rondo just for the social element as opposed to being on his own. Some managers love that. Some managers don't. Some managers like that. And they say, oh, actually, you can do the next bit or the next bit. So until you know where the manager is in terms of that, it's really hard to judge reintegrating players. Equally, there's some managers that you say, okay, we can integrate them in because the manager might say, oh, it's an easy session. But for that player, it might not be an easy session. So what the manager might not are comprehended or might not understand is that session for that player is too hard. Whereas when you get to know that manager, if he says, oh, I'm doing A, B and C in training today, if you've been with that manager, say like a club or pep, you have a good under, understanding of what the physical requirements of that session are. So there's probably less risk involved. Not saying none, but there's less. Whereas mm. if a new manager comes in and says, oh, he's just going to do this, this, and this, oh, and this passenger or whatever, and then you go and see the passenger and be like, oh, no, that is not what he needs to do today. But you can't pull him out of it because six players are needed for that drill. So then there's a risk element. But that All that kind of takes time to bed in. So there's that side of things from the content manager changes. The lead situation is they've just picked their poison. So, again, there's nothing wrong with it. So you can say, right, I'm going to push every single player and they'll all get 20% better. For example, I'm happy if two or three of those players get injured because by process, six of them have got 20% better, so I'm not bothered. The key is, are you happy if that is your starting player, your top goal scorer? Now, someone like Bielsa, you know, I don't know the guy. I've, I've worked with one of his kind of disciples in Carlos Corbran, but that was something that Bielsa seems okay with. And like, I'm happy to make that decision. And that's fine. I'm not saying I necessarily agree with it from my point of view, but my point of view isn't necessarily right either. So he's saying, I really don't care. I'm going to push everyone. And if I lose two or three, so be it. Other managers might say, I don't care. I'll actually go softly, softly. As long as everyone's available, I'm happy. So they don't want you to take any risks. They don't want you to push the players maybe a little bit far because they're like, as long as I've got my best players on the pitch, that's what's important. I don't care if they're 80 90%. As long as I've got my star striker that's going to get me 40 goals, 30 goals, that's going to win us games. Well, we're nearly out of time, so I'm going to find a couple more questions to throw at you. I think the first one maybe uh, would be one that focuses around the issue of injury recovery. So a couple of things here. So Winbot asks about when players are injured, how much training, keeping fit, physical activity they're actually instructed to do. So for a leg break, for example, are they literally sat on a sofa for weeks? Yeah, I mean, this is a side that a lot of people don't see. Um, and it's one that I don't envy at all. These guys get really put through their paces. So whatever they can do, we'll have them doing. So if they're in a full leg cast and they can't move their legs, they'll be doing stuff sat down, boxing, ropes. I mean, whatever we can get them to do to keep the cardiovascular system going, we'll do. So when a player gets injured, we'll go, right, this is you as a player now. We know that, okay, you've got an ACL, you've got a leg, whatever the time is out, six months, 12 months, 
you might have a whatever that's three months right how are we going to use a six eight week period so you come back a better athlete okay well do you know what you're a young player that wants to put on a little bit of muscle mass okay well we can do that now oh we want to do this we want to improve your hamstrings because you've had x problems so you almost have a program that is not just to get better from the injury but also for them to come back better athletically and then there's also a part that there'll be a physical simulation in terms of whether that be boxing, ropes, what bike, alter G, all these different formats that we have to stress them from a cardiovascular point of view in terms of to maintain their level of fitness. So when they come back in and they're stepping back on the pitch, it doesn't take you three weeks. It's not like, okay, as soon as they're pain-free, then we have to have two or three weeks to get them fit. We try and as everything, try and reduce those amounts of time. So, okay, we won't be able to have them as fit as they were, but we'll be able to reduce the gap so that when we get them on the grass, we can start at level six as opposed to level one. So that might reduce the time they're on the grass by six days, eight days, two weeks. And it's those periods that you might get an extra two games in. So they, I mean, some of the things we've had to do, you know, in terms of, I mean, there's horrible ones, you know, being sat on a rower, with almost like an office type chair because they can't bend or flex their legs and they're literally just using their arms. I mean, it is horrible. Um, so the early stages when you're limited can be quite um, testing both for us as practitioners to, to firstly stimulate them and secondly, try and keep that variety. So that it's not just the same thing every day, but yeah, it's um, they really get pushed hard. You know, they'll still get one to two days off a week like the group, but they'll be in, most days in, and usually really long days as well because they'll have three or four sessions, be it physio or strength or conditioning or pool sessions. Yeah, and maybe one final question then, touching on the mental and emotional to- toll of physical injury. So LFC asks, what the, obviously the, the mental toll of having an injury can be infinitely worse than the physical pain. So how do you as practitioners help the players deal with this? I think there's, again, a couple of aspects. So I think one is we try and give them aims in terms of, feel like they're achieving and developing from a physical point of view. I think you've always got to know that athlete and understand that they're going to have good days and bad days, but that's just for us to support the process for them to deal with the process. I think they need a lot more help than we can give them. So that's why a lot of clubs will have psychologists in. So the psychologist might be grabbing a coffee with him at the end of the phone with them, just our house things and, you know, doing what they do as professionals to help support the the problems that they're going through in terms of dealing with the injuries now some have no problems at all it is what it is i'm out for six weeks others if it's a longer one and maybe it's the first one it can be very difficult to deal with so and then there's been ones that have had long ones back to back that can be really draining but some get to it okay some need more support than others and that's just we forget they're all humans and how that would impact us as humans would be very different as well so all we can do is kind of be empathetic towards them, give them goals, and then also provide that psychological support through other professionals. Well, Callum, I've thoroughly enjoyed chatting to you. There's so many questions we could have still gone on to, to talk about. Maybe we'll get you on again in the future to be able to cover those. And to any of our listeners, listeners who we haven't managed to answer any, any of their questions, um, I am sorry, but time has unfortunately run out. But it's been so great to have you on. I think this is an area where so many people have very little of an idea of what actually goes on behind the scenes. And I know that um, producer Mike uh, has been really enjoying the, the answers to this question because he's been chatting to me in the background as well. So 
So, Callum, thank you so much for coming on. For those people who want to follow you, you are on social media at, on Twitter at Walshy2123. And you're also on LinkedIn. You told me that you've got a lot of PhD research going up on there. So I'll direct our uh, listeners over there if they want to find out more about what it is that you're doing. But Callum, thank you so much for coming on. No, thank you for having me. And thank you for letting me share some of the things we do for, for some of the listeners. Thank you.